How often do you talk to or talk about God? And when you do, what do you say? Are you thankful or complaining? How do you think God might answer you? Hi, I'm Yvonne Pran with Bible 805, where you learn to know, trust, and apply the Bible. In our final book of the Old Testament, we'll find some answers as we look at a series of conversations between a prophet and God in our lesson entitled, Malachi, Conversations with God, Past, Now, and Forever. The book of Malachi begins with God saying, I've always loved you, says the Lord, but you retort, really? How have you loved us? In some ways, these brief statements sum up the entire history of the Old Testament. God again and again both shows and declares his love for his people. And his people again and again don't believe him, go their own ways, reap the punishment from it, repent. God loves and forgives them all over, and they do it all over again. (laughs) In this lesson, we'll first look at the history of God's love for his people, his challenging conversation with them in the book of Malachi, and, of course, applications for us. In the beginning in Genesis, remember God created a perfect, beautiful, and wonderful garden for humanity. But then the enemy, Satan, came in, and though he didn't attack God directly, he insinuated that God didn't really love them by his words. Did God really say And with that, the implication that God was withholding something from them. Sadly, they believed the lie and they suffered the consequences. Sin and death entered the world for them and all who followed, though even in their judgment, God promised a coming Redeemer. The pattern repeated again and again and again. After calling Abraham from all the peoples, God created a family that grew to a nation in Egypt. When that protection and provision turned to slavery, God rescued his people from Egypt and promised he would take them to a land filled with abundance. The people literally heard the voice of God at Mount Sinai. Moses received the laws on how they were supposed to live. Most importantly, at that time, they agreed to the covenant with God to be his people and to obey all he required of them. And in this way, they would be his representatives to the world. But of course, they didn't keep their word. The remainder of the Old Testament we've read through in the previous months is one continuous story of how the people sinned, God used his prophets to remind them of the covenant they made with God and of the consequences. After centuries of warnings, the northern kingdom of Israel is conquered, deported, and never restored. The southern kingdom of Judah conquered, deported, and restored miraculously. And then there's good news and bad news in how they responded. Now here is how the New International Encyclopedia of Bible Characters introduces the final book of Malachi and this time period. And it starts by telling us the good news where it says, and I quote, though the exiles had been chastened and thoroughly purged of any inclination to idolatry, The bad news is that their leaders and they themselves came back to the homeland largely unreformed in other respects. The burden of the book of Malachi was the glaring 
incongruity between the identity of the Jewish people, of the Jewish community, as the people of God, and the living out of all that is that this required of them. It's the same challenge to us today. And the quote goes on to say, theirs was not the problem of rebuilding the temple in the holy city. They did that. They accomplished that. But it goes on to say, rather, it was the issue of holy living and holy service in the aftermath of all the external accomplishments. Malachi, though dead, yet speaks to the modern world about the need to bring performance into line with profession. Now, here's how Malachi challenges the people to do that, how he challenges them to bring their performance into line with their identity as the people of God. Now, this is another book that is structured in the form of a conversation similar to what we talked about earlier with the ending of Job, where Job and God have a conversation, and also the entire book of Habakkuk, where it is a conversation between the prophet and God. But unlike those to this is not a positive conversation with an ending of reconciliation for the nation as a whole. And sadly, it's a series of challenges and confrontations. And yet there's at the end, and you can look forward to this, there's a very positive promise for some. So let's take these one by one. First, I'll give you a quote of the challenge, and then what they were doing, and the application to us. So challenging conversation number one. In Malachi 1, 6, it said, and uh, by the way, these, um, and I, I forgot to put it on the notes, but these, all of these quotes are from the New Living Testament to make them hopefully a little understandable, a little bit more conversational for you. But anyway, it says, the Lord of heaven's armies says to the priests, a son honors his father and a servant respects his master. If I'm your father and master, where are the honor and respect I deserve. You've shown contempt for my name. But you ask, have we ever shown contempt for your name? I mean, just the way they asked that, that right there. But anyway, moving along. And God goes on to say, you've shown contempt by offering defiled sacrifices on my altar. Then you ask, have we defiled the sacrifices? And God says, when you give blind animals the sacrifices, isn't that wrong? But when you bring that kind of offering, why should he show you any favor at all? Ask the Lord of heaven's armies. You dishonor my name with your actions. Now, dishonoring God's name by our actions, we sometimes can do the same thing. Here's what they were doing. They were going through the motions of worship, but they were doing it in a shoddy, insincere way. That is what it means to take God's name in vain. It isn't saying a bad word here or there. It's when you call yourself a Christian, you call yourself one of God's chosen people, and then you act in a way that's completely contrary to that. If we identify as a Christian, as one who belongs to Christ, who belongs to Jesus, do we act like it, both in our worship and in our private lives? Remember this little saying, and I've quoted it a number of times before in a positive way, but it also has meaning in a negative way. And here's the little saying, you're writing a gospel, a chapter each day, by the things that you do and the words that you say. People read what you write, distorted or true. What is the gospel according to you? 
Take that little reminder very seriously in what you do. Do you just do things for yourself? Are you just out for yourself? Or do you live a life of service as Jesus did? Now we go on to challenging conversation number two in Malachi, where God says, Listen, you priests, this command is for you. The purpose of my covenant with the Levites was to bring life and peace, and that's what I gave them. This required reverence from them, and they greatly revered me and stood in awe of my name. They passed on to the people the truth of the instructions they received from me. They did not lie or cheat. They walked with me living good and righteous lives, and they turned many from lives of sin. The words of a priest's lips should preserve knowledge of God, and people should go to him for instructions, for the priest is the messenger of the Lord of heaven's armies." But you, priests, have left God's paths. Your instructions have caused many to stumble into sin. You've corrupted the covenant I made with the Levites, says the Lord of heaven's armies. So I've made you despised and humiliated in the eyes of all the people. For you've not obeyed me, but have shown favoritism in the way you carry out my instructions. That's terribly serious and really frightening. Spiritual leaders of all ages, stages, denominations, whether you're leading your household or a church or a Bible study or whatever it is, should be people of righteousness and peace, those who turn people from sin. Again, this doesn't only mean pastors. You're a leader wherever you are. In any position of leadership, parenting, teaching in any way, the focus should be on true instruction, not simply wanting to make people feel good or tell them what they want to hear or things like that. Keep the integrity of the gospel message. Don't water it down. We can be kind and understanding, but don't lose connection with the truth. If you don't challenge those you love, who will? Now, confrontation number three. Malachi says in Malachi 2.11, Judah's been unfaithful, and a detestable thing has been done in Israel and in Jerusalem. The men of Judah have defiled the Lord's beloved sanctuary by marrying women who worship idols. May the Lord cut off from the nation of Israel every last man who has done this and yet brings an offering to the Lord of heaven's armies. And there's another thing you do. You cover the Lord's altar with tears, weeping and groaning, because he pays no attention to your offerings and doesn't accept them with pleasure. You cry out, why doesn't the Lord accept my worship? I'll tell you why. Because the Lord witnessed the vows you and your wife made when you were young. But you've been unfaithful to her, though she remained your faithful partner, the wife of your marriage vows. Didn't the Lord make you one with your wife? In body and spirit, you're his. And what does he want? Godly children from your union. So guard your heart. Remain loyal to the wife of your youth. For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. Divorce your wife is to overwhelm her with cruelty, says the Lord of heaven's armies. So guard your heart. Do not be unfaithful to your wife. Now, here's some additional thoughts on divorce, and this is really, really important. God hates divorce. <laughs> That's not exactly a newsflash. And so does anyone who's gone through it. Not 
It is not, though, the unforgivable sin, and it's not even listed in many of the sins that God hates or that he characterizes as those outside the faith. He hates divorce, but one of the reasons that he does, and be prepared to be surprised, is because God himself has experienced this. In a, uh, a blog, and I've actually read this in a number of places, but this person summed it up, where he reminded us, this is from the blog Redeeming God, where he makes a statement, God himself is a divorced person. In Jeremiah 3.8, God says this, Then I saw that for all the causes which black backsliding Israel had committed, let me start that over. Then I saw that for all the causes for which backsliding Israel had committed adultery, I put her away, and I had given her a certificate of divorce. Now the blog goes on to say, one could argue that God was not exactly married to Israel the same way that a man is married to a woman. But against this, it could be argued that the covenant relationship God had with Israel was far stronger and more binding than the relationship shared between a husband and wife. And yet God divorced Israel. In Hosea, and other passages, it talks about the incredible pain of his separation from his beloved. He knows what that experience is like. If you're a person who's experienced the awfulness of divorce, he walks with you in it. He doesn't want his people to go through it, but he loves and forgives the victims of that sin just as he does the victims of any and all other sins who come to him in confession and forgiveness. Challenging conversation number four, Malachi 2.17, where God says you've wearied the Lord with your words. Can you imagine God being tired of listening to you? How horribly sad and tragic. Have we wearied him, you ask? By saying, all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and he's pleased with them. Or, where is the God of justice? Malachi 3.5 goes on to say, I will come to put you on trial. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless, who deprive the foreigners among you of justice. But do not fear me, says the Lord. Now there's two issues going on here. Here's the two issues. One, there's those who distort truth. And second, those who oppress employees, widows, orphans, foreigners. This is nothing new, what God is accusing them of. Again and again, throughout the Old Testament, God has said that to follow him means to be people of transparent truth and to care for the least of these, for those who are powerless, for the widows, the orphans, the foreigners. Let's talk a little bit more about those who distort truth. Those who destroy truth come in many forms. The most important thing is that you must know God's word well so that you can discern what's true and what isn't. People are absolutely shameless today. They will just say things and, you know, it can have absolutely nothing to do with truth. It's very hard for those of us who grew up believing people to be able to discern, but we just must line things up with God's word. And we do well 
to remember these words from Isaiah during, let's face it, this time of war and political unrest. They experienced it. It's been a continuing thing. We experience it when he said, this is what the Lord says to me with his strong hand upon me, warning me not to follow the ways of this people. And this is what God says, do not call conspiracy everything these people call conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear and do not dread it. The Lord Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy. He is the one you are to fear. He is the one you are to dread. Now simply think on those things and focus yourself on the Word of God. A reminder for online, uh, my online audience, and particularly I'm going to be enforcing this, I already have, but just as a reminder for the classes that I teach in person, you will not hear from me, nor will I allow in anything in my classes political comments or commentary about anything political, no matter what your view is, one way or the other, in any of my Bible classes. That's not what we're about. You can do what you want to do outside of it, believe what you want to believe, say what you want to say. But with as far as Bible 805 is concerned, we're citizens of the kingdom of heaven, and we focus on God's word. Now, second, the message to those who oppress employers, widows, orphans, foreigners. Oppression can also be caused by what you don't do as much as by what you do do. Now, of course, you shouldn't be intentionally mean, but think through, as a disciple of Jesus, what can you do to be truly kind to the people that you're around. You can so often tell what someone's really like with how they treat people they consider less important. Waiters, store clerks, service people in any position. Now, just some example suggestions. Be nice to support techs, um, especially if you have to talk to them, because now it's not, a lot of it's now it's online, but when you call a help department or something like that, keep in mind that most of those people, unless they make it really obvious if you're a U.S. person and you're calling in the U.S., that it's in the middle of the night for most of these people. If they're in India or the Philippines or, you know, they're not on the same schedule you are. And so be nice to them. It's hard work. And what I always do is they'll they'll always give you some goofy name that you know really isn't their name. And um, what I like to do is I right off the bat I'll say, now tell me your real name. And they'll go, well, it's John Smith. And I go, no, it isn't. I know it isn't. <laughs> you know, I said, tell me your name. And it's amazing how that can totally change a conversation when the person actually tells you their name. And end by saying thank you, even if they haven't been able to help. Um, it probably wasn't any easier for them than it was for you. So always do say thank you. When you're visiting a hotel, now this is important. Um, I've talked about in other classes how when I was involved with the Navigators, how they made sure whenever we went somewhere, if you use the restroom, that you always wiped up the sink. You know, you didn't leave splash water around. And just to kind of take that a little bit further, if you spent the night in a hotel, a very kind thing that you can do for the person that's keeping up your room to just give them maybe 
a couple minutes of rest is strip the bed yourself, strip the sheets, strip the towels, bundle everything up, um, put things in nice little piles, clean up your mess, throw away your trash, you know, just tidy up the room um, so that, again, they can have just a minute where it just says to them, you know, somebody cared about me as a person. When you eat out, stack your dishes up yourself. Don't leave stuff just strewn all over the place. It only takes a second to do that. But again, it says you care about someone that is serving you. And of course, in all things, tip well. Um, people that survive on tip income. And I worked as a waitress for many years uh, going through school. It's not an easy way to make a living. And in retail situations, tell cashiers you appreciate them. Don't give them a bad time. Just, you know, ask them how they're doing. Um, you know, don't interrupt their workflow, but but be kind and thank them for taking care of you. Express gratitude to managers. If somebody does a particularly good job, ask to see the manager. And I, I do that whenever I can. And it's always interesting to me how They'll come out to meet me a while back. I had a little picture reframed, and the gentleman that did it, it was at Michael's, and he did such a beautiful job. And I, I said, could I please see the manager? And it's always the same way. They come out, and you can just see the fear and dread in their eyes because they're expecting somebody to yell at them, somebody to complain, somebody to make a scene, whatever. And when I say, I just wanted to tell you that so-and-so there, and I always try to get their name, did such a wonderful, wonderful job, and you should be really glad that they're your employee, and I just really wanted you to know that. I've had managers just about cry, you know, in, in just gratefulness that somebody took the time to be kind to them, but, you know, and you don't need to then break out a gospel tract or anything like that, but be a good representative of Jesus. Now, confrontation number five. Oh, this is this is where the rubber hits the road. And now prepare yourself because I'm going to tell you some things you might not be used to hearing on this. This is Malachi 3.8 where it says, Should people cheat God? Yet you've cheated me. But you ask, what do you mean? When did we ever cheat you? And boy, then God lands into him. You've cheated me of the tithes and offerings due to me. You're under a curse, for your whole nation's been cheating me. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse, so there will be enough food in my temple. If you do, says the Lord of heaven's armies, I will open the windows of heaven for you. I will pour out a blessing so great you won't have enough room to take it in. Try it! Put me to the test. Your crops will be abundant, for I will guard them from insects and disease. Your grapes will not fall from the vine before they're ripe, says the Lord of heaven's armies. Then all nations will call you blessed, for your land will be such a delight, says the Lord of heaven's armies. Now, <laughs> we need to make some clarifications to properly understand this because I'm sure you've heard that passage quoted again and again and again. And I hate to tell you, and I'm not trying to be icky, but this is the truth. This is a little clarification on what that means. First of all, what exactly is the tithe? And what is the purpose of the tithe? And what is the storehouse? And how should we apply it today? First of all, what is the tithe? It is clearly spelled out 
in Deuteronomy and what it was to be used for. Listen carefully, because oftentimes you do not hear this passage when the passage from Malachi is quoted. And here is what it says. Be sure to set aside a tenth of all that your fields produce each year. That's, in other words, whatever your income is, a tenth of it. Eat the tithe of your grain, new wine, and olive oil, the firstborn of your herds and flocks in the presence of the Lord your God, at the place he'll choose as the dwelling for his name, so that you may learn to revere the Lord your God always. But if that place is too distant, and you've been blessed by the Lord your God and cannot carry your tithe, because the place where the Lord will choose to put his name is so far away, then exchange your tithe for silver. Take the silver with you and go to the place your Lord your God chooses. Use the silver to buy whatever you like, cattle, sheep, wine, or other fermented drink, anything you wish, then you and your household shall eat there in the presence of the Lord your God and rejoice. Do not neglect the Levites living in your towns, for they have no allotment or inheritance of their own. At the end of every three years, bring all the tithes of that year's produce and store it in your towns, so that the Levites, who have no allotment or inheritance of their own, and the foreigners, the fatherless, and the widows who live in your towns may come and eat and be satisfied, and so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. <laughs> Were you listening closely to that? Here's three things that are done with the tithe in the order that they're given and some suggested applications. Number one, what does God say to do with the tithe? Celebrate! <laughs> the whole first part of this passage, have a party in thankfulness for what God has given you. C.S. Lewis said, joy is the serious business of heaven. And that is such a great statement. Number two, support those in ministry. Do not neglect the Levites, as shown previously, those who correctly teach God's word. They didn't have fields. They didn't have farms. Their work was teaching, and you should support those who teach you the word. Support also, number three, the foreigners, the fatherless, and the widows. Very clearly, this is part of where your tithe should go. Now, second question, I'm going to offend some people, I know this, but this is what the scripture says. What is the storehouse? It is not the local church. In that day, it was the place responsible for all teaching, worship, sacrifices, and, this is really important, the social welfare of the time, and I'm going to talk about that more in a minute. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying we aren't supposed to support our local church. Obviously, that falls under the previous category of supporting those who teach. We definitely should support our local church. We definitely should give to it, but our responsibilities don't stop there. The command is clearly repeated in the New Testament that those who teach the word are normally to receive support from it. Now, sometimes that didn't happen. Um, the commands for it are in 1 Corinthians 9.14 and Galatians 6.6. 6. 
Though the Apostle Paul frequently worked as a tent maker because he was compelled to preach to those who were not part of Old Testament communities, they didn't know any better. When he first went into an area, they had no idea. First of all, they didn't even want to hear his message. They a lot of times would stone him, throw him out of town. <laughs> they weren't about supporting him. So he would work to support himself. Once the church was established, once they knew better, they were to support it. And for centuries, there was literally no local church to give to. But what they did do, what the church did do from their earliest days was to provide for the less fortunate in their communities. In fact, this care and giving to the less fortunate was one of the most important defining characteristics of the early Christians. The Emperor Julian, who tried to turn the nation, uh, well, the, the whole Roman Empire, back to paganism after Christianity started, he bemoaned how he couldn't get people to return to paganism, in part, he said, because Christians not only took care of their own needy, but their needy pagan neighbors. He said they just give and give and give, and, you know, we can't be that. They picked up cast-off babies from the trash heaps. They took care of people. They, in the letter to Diogenides, who's, it's one of the early Christian apologetic letters, it says, uh, quote, they spread their board for all, but not their beds. In fact, this giving and a good moral ethic, that was part of the defining characteristics of the early church. The most important thing to give, and a final thought, though, on giving, is really summed up in Romans 12, 1, where it says, I urge you, therefore, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies, in other words, every part of you, as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Giving all of yourself is much more important than just giving money. And some really good practical advice from C.S. Lewis on giving. And I've alluded to this quote before, but I got the whole quote for you this time, where he says, I do not believe one can settle how much we ought to give. I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. In other words, if our expenditures, and I would add on that our time, on comforts, luxuries, amusements, is up to the standard common among those with the same income as ours, we're probably giving away too little. If our charities do not at all pinch or hamper us, I should say they're too small. There ought to be things we would like to do and cannot do because our charitable expenditure and I would say our work for the kingdom also excludes them. Have a conversation with God about your giving. To who, when, how much. And remember the many ways to give, much more than money. Give of yourself first in life and in love, in time, in passion, in hobbies, in health, in spare time and service. Have a conversation with the Lord on what it would mean for you to be a living sacrifice. And are you pinched at all? That's a good question to ask yourself. One more confrontation, number six. You've said terrible things about me, says the Lord. But you say, what do you, what do you mean? What have we said against you? You've said, what's the use of serving God? What have we gained by obeying his commands or trying to show the Lord of heaven's armies that we're sorry for our sins? From now on, we will call the arrogant blessed. For those who do evil get rich, and those who dare God to punish them suffer no harm.
But that just really goes back to the first book in the Bible, the earliest book in the Bible that was written. Now, in our books, of course, it's Genesis, but actually the first one written was probably Job. But anyway, moving right along. Um, in Job, Satan accuses him before God when he says, Does Job serve God for nothing? Take everything away and see if Job will still serve you. God did that. Job still trusted him. But that test, what he's referring to here in Malachi and what happened to Job, it continues the whole idea of do people just serve God for what they can get out of it? And you may be tested in that way. We can expect the same accusations from the enemy. Satan will whisper in our ear that God doesn't really love us, that he loves other people more, that he gives them more stuff and less trials, when in reality, God may be honoring us with the trials, with our needs, and with the challenges that we have. In faith, we need to keep our eyes on God and trust him no matter what. The book ends with reminders that this isn't all there is, and we ought to not focus primarily on it. Judgment's coming, as Malachi reminds his audience, where he says in 4.1, Surely the day is coming, it will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble, and that day that is coming will set them on fire. Not a root or a branch will be left to them. If you want it all now, now is all you're going to get. When Bill Hybels became a believer, Dr. Belazikian had him put notes on all his stuff that said, soon to be burned, soon to be burned, soon to be burned, as a good reminder that if we're too attached to anything in this world, it's soon to be burned. While the temporary, though, will burn, God goes on to promise in Malachi 4.2, But for you who revere my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its rays, and you will go out and frolic like well-fed calves. Someday, for those who love God, you will be healed mentally, physically, emotionally, and you will be joyful. And also consider this wonderful, wonderful passage that is a great way to end this book and our study of the Old Testament, where it says in Malachi 3.16, Then those who feared the Lord talked with each other, and the Lord listened and heard. A scroll of remembrance was written in his presence concerning those who feared the Lord and honored his name. On the day when I act, says the Lord Almighty, they will be my treasured possession. I will spare them, just as the Father has compassion and spares his Son who serves him. And you will again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who do not. For all of you who've listened and learned, discussed and prayed, not only are our conversations with God important, but when we discuss Him with others, the Lord Almighty is listening. And it's been recorded. Your sins are forgiven and forgotten. And more than your spiritual salvation, what you talk about when you talk about the things of the Lord is remembered. 
And one day, when all that is evil and sad is melting away in judgment, we will be spared his treasured possession to walk once again with our God in loving conversation forever. That's all for now. Please check out the notes from this lesson and associated materials. Everything that you need, the videos, links to videos, podcasts, notes, um, uh, links to the Bible 805 Academy. If you want to teach this material yourself, it's all available available at www.805.com. Until next time, I'm Yvonne Prin, your fellow pilgrim, writer, and teacher for Jesus. And I'd like to close with this benediction. May you know the invitation of God to move from confusion to clarity, from wandering to rest, from loneliness to knowing you are loved, from turmoil to peace, from wherever you are on your spiritual journey to a growing knowledge of God's Word and in your personal relationship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.